If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Since you're listening to this podcast, we have a very special offer for you. You can try six issues of BBC History Revealed magazine for just $9.99. That's a saving of 70% on the shop price. BBC History Revealed is the all-action history magazine suitable for the whole family. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May, 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What was the daily routine in the British workhouse? Who would end up there? How accurate is Dickens' depiction of workhouse life? And did the inmates really eat gruel? Well, in today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're exploring life in the workhouse. I put your questions to Peter Higginbotham, a historian and writer who's shared his expertise on the workhouse on shows such as Who Do You Think You Are and Radio 4's Making History, and also runs the website workhouses.org.uk. Thanks very much for joining me, Peter, to talk all about the workhouse. We've had loads of questions in from social media. So let's start with one that's actually not from social media. It's, it's basically the most searched for internet term about the workhouse, which is, what was the workhouse? Where do we start with that? Well, the workhouse uh, was always part of what we call the welfare system, or in those days, the poor relief system. And that really goes back to the Elizabethan uh, days. Parishes started collecting money uh, from all their householders. And most of that money was actually used as handouts. Uh, pensions even actually even date back to that kind of uh, that period. And the workhouse kind of grew up within that welfare system, and it really had two main functions. One, it was a place where people 
who couldn't even get by with a handout, uh, the elderly, uh, the chronically sick, the mentally ill, orphan children. Those sort of people uh, needed a refuge somewhere that would look after them. And later on, it also took on another function, uh, which was for dealing with what were called the able-bodied poor. Uh, People, you know, who were quite capable of working, but for some reason weren't uh, earning any money. And if those people wanted uh, help from the parish, um, then instead of a handout, uh, they could be offered a place in this institution called the workhouse where they would really have to work in return uh, for their board and lodging. And in fact, the, the, the workhouse became a, what's called a test of someone's destitution or need. If they were prepared to go to this place, then that was fine. They were clearly deserving. If it worked, uh, as far as the parish was concerned, it would bring down the cost of looking after the poor. You'd get rid of lots of people who were really deserving uh, of help uh, by only offering them the workhouse. Probably about one in five, one in six parishes over the years decided to run a workhouse. But handouts were always the main way of helping the poor. The, the workhouse, although it's the most kind of visible part of this whole welfare system, was actually in financial terms and in numbers of people uh, who were being helped, was a a bit of a minor player. But anyway, we we will focus on the workhouse and see where that takes us. One thing I should also say is that there was a big change in this whole system in 1834. If ever you read about the workhouse, that's a year that always crops up. In the years running up to 1834, the national cost of all these handouts was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, particularly after the Napoleonic Wars ended and then lots of people um, started claiming poor relief. And the whole system was reorganised and the new system that came in in 1834 uh, was a standard national system. There were workhouses everywhere. Uh, the country was divided up into new bigger areas, not the little parish anymore, but a bigger unit called the Poor Law Union. And that was run by a local uh, committee of elected uh, guardians, they were known, who administered the system. And the new system was aimed really to bring down the cost of, of, of these the, the handouts looking after the poor. And in the new system, the workhouse was a more prominent part. And it was really the aim was, if you were able-bodied, then wherever you were, the only option on offer, if you wanted help, would be the workhouse. So, as you mentioned, there was big transformations and changes in the in the way that um, workhouses operated. But Megan Maguire Abid asks, when did they start? So, would you say it is that Elizabethan period? Well, there were things that we would probably describe as workhouses starting to appear in the 1620s, 1630s. But it really kicked off in the 1720s. Uh, Parliament passed an act called the Workhouse Test Act, which for the first time crystallised a, a kind of a legal framework for running a workhouse. And then there was a whole boom uh, of workhouses, uh, parish workhouses uh, set up in the, in the, in the following decades. Um, and AGM Calice asks how many were in operation. Obviously, that number is going to be different at the different time periods you're looking at. Yeah. Uh, in the parish era, the pre-1834 era, era, I think it's been estimated in the 1810s, 1820s, there were probably as many as 3,000 workhouses, which sounds a lot, but again, there are 15,000 parishes. And was that across uh, the whole of Britain? That was England and Wales. After 1834, we had uh, bigger workhouses serving larger areas, so rather fewer of them, but they were bigger. And there were somewhere between 600 and 650 of these kind of what we think of as Victorian big workhouses. So now we've covered off um, the basics of how these operated. I've got a question from Daniel O'Donnell, actually, which is um, how accurate was Oliver Twist and Dickens' wider writings about the workhouse? And you would not believe how many questions that we had in were about Charles Dickens. Well, so certainly Oliver Twist uh, has created the picture that most people have in their minds uh, about workhouses. Interestingly, um, Oliver Twist was first, or began publication in 1837, which is when the new system had started. But it actually, the workhouse it talks about is a pre-1834 parish workhouse. Um, and it's got elements of truth in it. You know, it was a large building full of poor people, you could say. Um, but it 
uh, was really a caricature uh, as much as anything. So, for example, the committee that ran the the, um, the workhouse in the Dickens book uh, were described uh, as being in solemn enclave when the beadle burst in saying, Oliver's asked for war. Whereas if, if you think of the uh, the film, say, the, the, the musical of Oliver, they're all stuffing their faces and looking like fat, you know, Oh, evil beasts. Um, so certainly Oliver Twist and lots of the uh, versions of it that appeared over the years have created this picture uh, that, that's, that's far from the truth. In Oliver Twist, um, the boys in the workhouse, uh, if I remember rightly, exist on a, a, a diet of gruel and an onion on Sundays. And there was never a workhouse where that was the diet. You know, There was never a workhouse where the inmates so- existed solely uh, on gruel. And in fact, in some workhouses, uh, the, the food was very good. You know, you've got uh, three very square meals a day. It varied enormously, though, because each parish could do its own thing, and some parishes were obviously sort of more generous than others in what they provided. But interestingly, the, the sort of the negative parts of uh, Oliver Twist uh, were used to sort of run down the new system. If, again, if you remember the, the musical Oliver, there's a, a, a song called Boy for Sale, Yes. Now, workhouses well. never sold boys. Uh, they were offered for apprenticeships, but they 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 came with money. Not you didn't get money from their future employer. You gave some money f- for him to take them off their hands. So there's lots of sort of distortions, you know, that have, have, have in Oliver Twist and have have been bolted on to Oliver Twist over the years. On the other hand, if you look at Dickens's more journalistic writings. Uh, in the various magazines that he, uh, he was involved in, uh, he, he visited a few workhouses and related establishments, and was actually sometimes quite either complimentary or sympathetic um, towards them. So I think um, you know, viewing Dickens as a stern you know, uh, critic of the workhouse is probably you know not not a fair picture. Um, next, I'm going to ask you a question that we've had in from um, D Weaver on Facebook, uh, which is an interesting one. Who says many of the workhouse buildings are incredibly beautiful? And she says like the Thackeray Medical Museum in Leeds, if people know that one. So why was so much cost put into building them to then be so miserly with the inmates? Well, that's an interesting question. Some of the early post-1834 workhouses uh, like Leeds were actually quite sort of stern-looking buildings, uh, almost kind of prison-like in their appearance. And that gradually changed over the next few decades. And it is kind of in line with the increasing prosperity of Britain. Some of the more, what you'd call elegant ones from the 1850s, 1860s, really reflected the the growing richness of of, of Britain. And a lot of big towns like Leeds uh, decided that they wanted to show kind of how much they cared for the poor, if you like, reflected in the appearance of the building. However, it was very much the front of the building that was the elegant-looking bit. You know, if you look behind the frontage, it often became, you know, much plainer and uh, simply constructed. It was interesting, though, some of the most eminent architects of the Victorian period began their careers designing workhouses. Uh, Sir George Gilbert Scott, uh, one of the most well-known Victorian architects, you know, who designed the St Pancras Station and I think the Albert um, Memorial and so on, he did, began his career designing workhouses because it was a very lucrative business to be in. Uh, you got paid a percentage of the cost price of the building. And if you, if you design a very big building, your 3% or whatever it was was actually quite a decent, a decent cut. So uh, it's it's kind of a, 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 an interesting story that goes with that. So let's ha- talk a bit about um, the experience of being in a workhouse. Laurelise XO asks who qualified to live in the workhouses. And actually, I might add on another question to that from um, Lydia the Klein, who asks, what was the process of admitting inmates like? Right. Uh, to gain entry into a workhouse, uh, you had to live in its catchment area, is kind of the term we would probably use, either in the parish or in one of the parishes that made up one of these uh, poor law unions. As far as the admission process goes, you generally didn't just turn up at the workhouse and knock on the door. Uh, there was an official uh, called the relieving officer 
who was the frontline official of the system. And generally, they visited each bit of the, the union two or three times a week. So you know, you knew if you lived in sort of Stoke Poges, you know, he'd be at, at the dog and duck at two o'clock on Thursdays. And if you felt like, you know, you wanted to ask for help, you would go and queue up and tell him your sob story. Uh, you'd probably be hoping for a handout because actually handouts never quite went away. But if certainly if you were able-bodied, uh, he'd say, sorry, all I can offer you is the, is, is the workhouse. And it was always an offer. You never put in the workhouse, sent, sent to the workhouse, sentenced uh, to the workhouse. It was always an offer. And it's a bit like today, uh, if you're unemployed, there's unemployment assistance, but you're not forced to claim it. You know, it, it's there to, to be asked for. So if you decided to take up that very kind offer, uh, you would make your way to the workhouse and there'll be quite a long admission process. You, you'd um, uh, have your details taken. You'd uh, have a bath and a medical. You weren't wanting to take any horrible infectious disease into the workhouse. Uh, and smallpox was a very con- big concern in Victorian times. So uh, there was like a quarantine uh, period kept in on the edge of the, the, the main workhouse. And you were also given workhouse clothing or uniform, as it's sometimes referred. It was never called uniform officially, uh, but clothing. Uh, some people have a bit of a thing about the workhouse clothing. They see it as kind of this dehumanising kind of process. You're forced into this straitjacket of a uniform. But uh, clearly, if you turn up at a workhouse wearing one set of rags, um, then you you know you really want something a bit better than that for your time in the workhouse, particularly if you're going to be working. And if you turn up in your one set of rags, what happens when those rags want washing? You're going to wander around, you know, uh, in your, you know, in your, in your undies. So it was a very practical thing. Your own clothes were put into storage, possibly having been fumigated first. In the workhouse, you know, the the the, uh, the clothing got washed, and uh, it wasn't actually always identical. Uh, it it, it tended to be bought in bulk, or the uni- the inmates made it themselves. Uh, so it had sim- you no, know, it w- it wasn't completely random, but um, uh, it was um, you know of a similar type. So it's not like everybody was wearing striped jumpsuits with a inmate number on it, or exactly, like that. exactly, yeah, yeah. As regards uh, leaving the workhouse, it wasn't a prison. You could leave any time you wanted in principle. Uh, however, you couldn't just waltz out the door whenever you felt like it. If you were wearing workhouse uniform and you left the premises without permission wearing your workhouse uniform, you could be charged with stealing workhouse property. And that was one kind of control that the staff had over people just coming and going as they wished. You, if you wanted to leave the building before you were formally discharged, you would need to get permission. When you did want to leave permanently, then you gave a few hours notice uh, of your intent to discharge yourself. Your own clothes were fetched out uh, of storage, uh, a bit more paperwork, and, uh, and, and you went on your way. So uh, that was really how it worked. I think that leads us on nicely to a couple of questions, actually, that I've had from Rosie Barr and Teresa88. So Rosie Barr asks, um, to what extent did people move in and out again of the workhouse? And Teresa88 asks, and what was the average amount of time that people spent in the workhouse? So was it something that you just go to once um, and then leave and you'd never go back? Or would you be back and forth between um, the outside world and the workhouse? They were all points in between. Uh, For some people, particularly the elderly or the chronic sick, if you went into a workhouse, there was a fair chance you might stay there for the rest of your life. Because workhouses and workhouse infirmaries were the only form of very long-term geriatric care, we'd probably say, that there was. So once you were in, you know, that was pretty much it. Uh, you, I mean, you could leave if you, if you know, if you felt capable, but it was, that was a situation. So you could spend the rest of your life there uh, if, you, if you happen to be in that situation. At the other end of the scale, there are people who uh, are usually referred to as the ins and outs. They use the workhouse just like a free lodging house. Uh, and they turn up on a Monday, get checked in, stay there a couple of days, and then decide they'd had enough. 
you know, and the, the, discharge themselves, go and visit Auntie Flo, you know, in the next village, and uh, then she'd throw you out and you'd be back on the work, workhouse doorstep a couple of days later. There were people who literally checked themselves in and out of the workhouse dozens and dozens of times a year for different amounts of time. You, you know, anything between, you know, even just down as, as little as one day, they'd go in and said, oh stuff this for a, you know, a laugh. Um, in the 1870s, the rules were changed slightly so that if you had been in, uh, you know, in the last month, then you, you couldn't leave within so many days. And the, long, you know, the more times you'd just been in and out, the longer you had to stay until you could discharge yourself again. So it was, you know, um, but up till that point, they, you know, these people were the bane of the workhouse staff life because there was this long admission discharge procedure, even if you, you know, left the next day, you, know, you had to go round and round you know, every time they, went, they came and went. That's really interesting. So next up, I've got a question from Michelle Ruse, and Dickens is making a reappearance here, um, who says, there's a quote from Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where one of the characters tells Scrooge that some people would rather die than enter a workhouse. But to what extent were workhouses actually a saving grace for many people? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, you always have to view the workhouse in terms of life outside the workhouse for poor people at the time. For a lot of poor people, you know, life was pretty tough. You know, they might be scraping along, you know, really on the verge of needing, uh, you know, the help of the workhouse, but pride prevented them. So, they, you know, they were living, you know, maybe on sort of literally bread and water in, you know, 12 to a room, you know, in some very down and out, uh, dirty hovel. And for those kind of people, there was often a choice between sticking that out, out hoping things might improve, a, you know, a job might turn up, or surrendering themselves uh, to the workhouse, where, you know, you've got three square meals a day, uh, you had to put up with sleeping in a dormitory with other people, uh, having to do work if you're able-bodied, than being separated, you know, from other people. But you know, uh, it, it possibly had some some attractions. It was a kind of, you know, a difficult choice to make, uh, possibly. And there would be stigma attached with there too. Yeah, to there was. It. There would there became uh, well again for some people certainly uh, what you might call decent people. The, the workhouse represented. I mean, you could say it's a failure. You uh, couldn't pay your rent. You couldn't put bread on the table, you know, and you were in a, a sinking sort of ship, as it were. And, you know, life was tough, but, you know, uh, people had their pride. And the workhouse was, was a bit of a poverty trap in a way. When you left the workhouse, if you decided to leave the workhouse, you weren't given a handout to get you going again. You know, you somehow had to find somewhere to live. Maybe, you know, uh, say, I'll pay you the rent in a few weeks' time, uh, you had to get a job, you know, and uh, hopefully persuade someone to give you a bit of an advance, you know, on, on your wages. Uh, but it was really difficult, you know, to get going again uh, once you're in the workhouse because you left all the things, you know, that you associate with a stable life. And it was a pretty tough thing. It was difficult for people, and there was an attraction in trying to avoid going in the workhouse. But it certainly was a stigma. And in fact, this was uh, recognised by the authorities uh, at one point in 1904. The Registrar-General, as the office that issues birth, marriage and death certificates, uh, decided that from that date onwards, if you were born in a workhouse, then that word needn't appear on your birth certificate you could have some kind of anonymous street address instead. So no one would ever know that you'd been born in the workhouse and that kind of stigma wouldn't follow you around for the rest of your life. But there certainly was a stigma. It's sometimes said that that was, to a degree, encouraged by the authorities in order to dissuade people from, from seeking help. I'd, I'd, I've never seen any evidence for that, but it's one of those things that you, know, you, you hear said uh, about, uh, about the workhouse. Um, so you mentioned there the possibility of being separated from people and um, Lindsay Jones-Murray asked on Facebook, um, I've heard that families were separated upon entering. Did they ever get reunited? And if someone was sick or dying, would, would they bring their family in to be with them? Um, that's certainly true that families were separated. When you went into the workhouse, uh, you were put into a category or a class as soon as you entered the door. So male and female 
uh, inmates were always separated. And within those, uh, was, there, was a, there was a separation of the elderly and infirm, the able-bodied boys, girls, 7 to 15, and the under-7s was the final kind of grouping. And each of those uh, categories had their own section of the building. And once you went in, then broadly speaking, you, you know, you confined to your own section of the building uh, until you left. Uh, there were some minor exceptions to that. Parents who had children in the same workhouse could see their children. Uh, officially, you could have a, a daily appointment with your children uh, supervised you know, by, by the workhouse staff. In practice, uh, what usually happened was that on Sunday afternoons, one or other of the parents could meet up with the children, uh, possibly in the big dining hall, or they could swap over. But the two parents uh, weren't allowed uh, allowed to meet. That seems somehow unnecessarily cruel. What was the the thinking, the ideology behind keeping everybody separated from their family members? Well, officially, it was to maintain discipline. Uh, was how it was expressed. Certainly, uh, adult males and females could possibly get up to all sorts of shenanigans if they weren't carefully uh, divided. And there were lots of examples of people climbing over walls or using devious means to have assignations (laughs) with the the opposite sex. I think it was just uh, um, convenient administratively and managerially to have people separated in that way. It was official. There was also an element of, the, of deterrence. One of the aims of the post-1834 workhouse is that it should be an unattractive place to be. You'd rather be outside uh, than inside. And the separation of, of, of different uh, categories of, of uh, male, female, and so on, you know, was probably part of that general attitude. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think just approach the subject with an open mind. Don't believe these, you know, colourful, you know, caricatures that are always presented, even now, in most representations you see of the workhouse. Keep an open mind and remember that whatever you're looking at changed throughout that whole period. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Francis Bibb asks, what was a day in the life like? So can you give us a sense of the daily routine in, a, in an average workhouse? 
Okay, daily life. It, again, it depends which of these categories uh, you were in. Uh, if you were able-bodied, uh, then it, you'd be up at six in the morning. You'd have an hour where you'd be doing roll call, have some breakfast, uh, washing, um, or whatever. And then from seven till noon, uh, you'd probably be doing five hours of work, or whatever you'd been assigned to. Uh, you get an hour for your midday dinner, uh, another five hours work in the afternoon, uh, up till uh, six o'clock. You'd have your supper. Uh, there'd be an hour of um, unspecified time, so any kind of recreation that went on would be in that sort of early evening slot, and then you'd be uh, in bed uh, by eight. In the winter, I think you got up at seven rather than six. You had the luxury of an extra hour of bed in the morning. Um, the elderly and infirm, though, had a, a slightly more relaxed uh, regime. On the whole, they either had a later or unspecified getting up time. Uh, the elderly and the infirm always had a slightly uh, easier time of things. So, you know, think when it came to things like food, they, they had a slightly better better deal. But it was always quite structured. Things always happened at certain times, and there was a bell to kind of indicate that something needed to happen. Uh, Sunday was the one day of rest. Uh, no work was done on Sunday, but it was full of um, uplifting church services and Bible study and, and, and so on, as they plus the afternoon kind of get together with the children if that, if that applied. The elderly, though, had, I think, a fairly boring time of it. Uh, they had day rooms and possibly a few uh, worthy books to read or, if, if any body had donated a few magazines. But, you know, that was it. Mm. So for those who were working, what jobs did they do in the workhouse? OK, uh, what jobs did they do? Well, the women did all the domestic work of the workhouse, so cleaning, cooking, uh, washing, doing the laundry, uh, sewing. Uh, in some cases, they'd be actually making workhouse clothing, and that was one of the jobs uh, the women often uh, took on. The men, though, uh, if they were able-bodied, could be doing fairly demanding work, uh, and the, the two favourite jobs that uh, were used were stone-breaking, as bashing up big lumps of stone into small lumps of stone, uh, which could then be uh, sold for road making or whatever, and oakum picking, uh, which is uh, picking apart old manky old ropes uh, from ships or, or wherever into their raw fluffy fibres, which again could be used for you know then used recycled for other purposes. Quite monotonous work then. Yes, the one thing about the work it it did it, it wasn't allowed to compete with local industry. So even though you some of them you know people, say the male inmates might be skilled carpenters, they weren't allowed to you know make furniture uh, or whatever because that would you know because the labour was free, it wouldn't be a fair competition. Again, as time went on, by the early 1900s, uh, most workhouse inmates were you know older people. Uh, so things like wood chopping became quite popular. You know, it's still kind of manual uh, labour, but um, you could quantify it very easily and you could do it sitting down. And it was not so not, not quite so physically demanding, reflecting the, the, the change in the population. Um, and Lene Kay asks, what happened to the children? I mean, obviously, child labour was used at points in the 19th century, but was that the case in the workhouse? Well, certainly in the post-1834 workhouse, the children were the one group that were actually what you might call well-treated. There was uh, a lot of effort quite early on, uh, from sort of 1840 onwards, really, uh, to try and get children uh, away from the adult inmates uh, who were seen as a bad influence, and they would teach them you know, bad ways. So uh, there was the start of really setting up separate institutions, separate establishments for uh, uh, pauper children. Uh, you had, starting off with, you had um, big kind of buildings called industrial schools or, or separate schools, uh, which are like literally workhouses for children, where they were educated and also taught uh, skills to make them employable. So uh, things like tailoring, boot making, carpentry, plumbing, uh, lots of, sort of basic craft skills. Uh, and the, the hope was that when those children uh, left the system, you know, if they stayed long enough, uh, that they would be employable and they wouldn't therefore turn into uh, workhouse inmates like their parents uh, had. You know, workhouse children 
received a basic education. Uh, they got three hours a day uh, um, of basic, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, and uh, religious studies, which was actually more than you know some of the people outside were getting. Um, there was a debate uh, in the early days about whether they should be taught to read, and write, because that was giving them a you know a better situation than people on the outside, which was counter to the less well-off argument. You know, again, it was decided that, that you know, that would be a good thing. Again, it, they would become employable uh, in the long run uh, if, if they were taught to read and write. So it wouldn't necessarily be as grim always as Oliver Twist, for example? No, it's really um, strange. I, you know, if it, it's very easy uh, when you're thinking about the workhouse to be so influenced by Oliver Twist you know, without realising it. it. And when you actually try and stand back and see, well, you know, how does that work and what's the situation, uh, you, you, you can actually start to see it wasn't as relentlessly grim as the picture that's often painted. Next up, we have a couple of questions about health and hygiene. So Brot Appetite, great name, um, asked, how was personal hygiene managed when people would have to wash, sleep and eat collectively? And Jacqueline Price has asked, what healthcare provisions existed and to what degree was public health considered? Right. Um, as regards general hygiene, workhouses were generally very clean places because keeping the place clean was one of the useful tasks you could give to the inmates. All the bedding and clothing uh, was generally washed at least once a fortnight and the, you know, the physical premises uh, were kept um, very clean. Washing was done in a a large room called a lavatory. Um, lavatory in those days was a washroom. So if you see the word lavatory in the workhouse context, it doesn't mean a, what we would call a toilet. Uh, it's a washroom. So, uh, you know, generally people, you know, wash themselves. Uh, uh, bathing in, in a, a bathtub was quite a rare thing to do. Most workhouses had one or two baths. But in fact, you know, in general, in Victorian times, you know, bathtubs were quite you know, the preserve of the very, very well-to-do. Uh, so when you discover that a workhouse just had one or two bathtubs, then that, that's actually not such a sort of surprising thing. The, the facilities varied enormously, but people lived in a clean building, had clean clothes. Uh, they did have close contact. You know, they did sleep I mean, sort of 20 or 30 to a dormitory. And occasionally you did get sort of outbreaks of things. But on the whole, it's probably surprising, actually, there wasn't more of it. Um, you know, sort of when, when you when you think about it, as regards public health, well, every workhouse had its infirmary. Um, workhouse inmates, in the first instance, were treated in the workhouse infirmary, which was you know separate to any public institutions. And outside, uh, the main medical resource at that time were, were voluntary hospitals, who really primarily dealt with things like surgery, accidents. Uh, so on, uh, and you know there wasn't really much of a crossover uh, between the two. The thing about the workhouse infirmary is that really up till the eighteen sixties, uh, workhouses were probably uh, the worst place you'd want to get sick in to some degree, because the nursing was done by elderly female inmates on the whole. And a lot of those uh, those women couldn't read and write. They couldn't read instructions on bottles or instructions left by the doctor. Uh, and they were actually drunk most of the time. You know, um, they often they often got a you know a ration of beer for volunteering to do the job in the first place. And a lot of the things that were dispensed to the sick poor in the workhouse infirmary, you know, were either brandy or porter or or you know they they contained alcohol in some shape or form. And a lot of that stuff didn't always quite make it to the patient. And you literally, you know, I'm not, I'll be quite serious, a lot of workhouse nurses, you know, were actually um, the worst for wear, you know, by nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's not really what you want from your nurse. No, it? there was really a big push uh, from the 1860s onwards, again, particularly in London, but it kind of spread out from there to improve workhouse medical care. Uh, Florence Nightingale was was very involved uh, in, in trying to improve workhouse nursing, and there were lots of uh, you know the, the medical journals um, published sort of hair raising accounts of conditions 
that they, they came across. And from the 1870s onwards, there were big changes. Uh, lots of new workhouse infirmary buildings were put up. Uh, trained nurses uh, were employed. And the thing that really uh, transformed things was really from the 1870s, 1880s onwards. If you were poor outside the workhouse but couldn't afford a doctor, because you had to pay for doctors in those days, uh, then you would increasingly be packed off to the workhouse infirmary for any treatment that you needed. And uh, as a result of that, uh, in many places, the workhouse infirmary became the local hospital for poor people. And again, as, um, because of that increased traffic, then the workhouse medical facilities expanded as a reaction. And in many workhouses, particularly ones in cities, the workhouse uh, medical facilities outgrew the accommodation for the poor. They basically became large hospitals. When the National Health Service in England and Wales was formed in 1948, you know, it had this culture of free access to all, you know, actually going back 60 years or more, and it inherited a lot of workhouse uh, sites. A big proportion of the NHS real estate in 1948 was former workhouse infirmaries. In fact, the new system was inaugurated at a workhouse infirmary up in, in Lancashire uh, by Nye Bevan. Um, so workhouse infirmaries, they made a shaky start, but once they got going, uh, you know, they made quite a, quite a big contributor uh, to the public health system. Um, so I've got a couple more questions that we'll kind of try and just race through before the end. So I know we've spoken a bit about food already, but I had such a great question in that I wanted to put it to you um, for a bit more detail. So Laura Fopp on Facebook said, we've been studying Victorians for home education. So please, can you tell us about the workhouse diet? And Laura says, we've also been searching for an authentic recipe for gruel. Watered down porridge, or is it just flour and water? You suggested maybe gruel is not quite historically accurate. Well, it, it did feature in the diet. Uh, but actually, uh, what you need is my workhouse cookbook, which I, which I produced uh, a few years ago, kind of the history of the workhouse food, you know, going back forever, which is packed with authentic recipes. Certainly, gruel did um, start to feature by name uh, as such, you know, in, in the in the uh, in the seventeen hundreds, uh, uh, along with porridge uh, and all sorts of stodgy um, things. So, what was gruel? Well, gruel is basically half strength porridge. There was actually a workhouse cooker, the cookery book issued in nineteen oh one. Uh, which gave, you know, which was issued to workhouse cooks, uh, and it contains uh, a recipe for porridge, which is four ounces of oatmeal to a pint of water, and a bit of salt uh, for flavouring. Gruel is two ounces of oatmeal to a pint of water, and a bit of treacle. So gruel is half strength porridge. Uh, literally, that's what it is. So it's very watery uh, porridge. But food did change, uh, again, like most things about the workhouse, you can't say the food was like this. All you can say is the food was like this in the you know, 1850s or 1910s or whatever. Yeah, everything about the workhouse evolved uh, over, over the years. So in the 1840s, when the workhouse was trying to be a deterrent institution, the food was very plain. For breakfast, it would probably be, be gruel or porridge and possibly the same for supper in the evening, uh, or possibly bread and cheese. Uh, bread and cheese was a very popular uh, staple of the workhouse diet. You might get a meat dinner two or three times a week, middle of the day, uh, soup or broth a couple of times a week for dinner. But the, the, yeah, that was really it. It's sort of the gruel, bread and cheese, bread and cheese, gruel, bread and cheese, bread and cheese, gruel, bread and cheese. Oh, it's Tuesday. Oh, it's, it's, it's a meat and two veg for dinner. Oh, bread and cheese, gruel, bread and cheese, uh, and so on. But in the early 1900s, I'd say 1901 uh, really was the, the turning point. It was recognised that a lot of uh, workhouse food was being thrown away. Because if you didn't eat your dinner, you know, you didn't come back the next time, you got put in the bin. And by 1901, a lot of workhouse inmates, you know, were the elderly and the sick and the mentally ill and children. Who, and some of those people literally couldn't you know, couldn't swallow eight ounces of bread and two ounces of cheese two or three times a day. 
you know that their appetites you know weren't that strong, but you were you were always given your full ration. So in 1901, there was an overhaul, and uh, from that point on, you could have a half ration to start off with if you wanted. And also, um, each workhouse could compile its own weekly menu plan. And there was a list of about 50 different dishes uh, approved for this uh, new system and a cookbook introduced to go with it. And there were things like Irish stew and pasties, you know, and uh, cake and, you know, treacle pudding. There was still gruel and porridge in the cookbook, but uh, generally the food did reflect the fact that by the early 1900s, uh, the workhouse wasn't a, uh, you know, a deterrent place for, you know, skiving, you know, know, uh, labourers who who, who fancied not working. Um, It was a refuge for the elderly and the sick and the mentally ill, uh, the chronically sick, you know, single mothers and their children. It was a refuge for, you know, the downtrodden part of society and things like the food very much changed in tandem with that. So there you go, Laura. Um, authentic gruel, half-strength porridge. Easily done, I think, that. Um, so we've got a couple of final questions just about the closure of workhouses and and the kind of uh, people's path out of the workhouse. So I'll, I'll put one of those to you first, I think, which is Carrie Gillen says, how difficult was it to get employment after leaving? Were people completely left to their own devices to find work when they got out? I think it varied a bit. To some degree, um, I think um, workhouses were used by local employers as potential sources of labour in times when labour was scarce. Um, So, you know, that would help get some people uh, out of the place if they heard there was a job going at, you know, some company uh, nearby. I mean, in the agricultural areas, there was a very seasonal um, supply of work. You know, in the summer... In the autumn uh, and the spring as well, I suppose uh, there was plenty of agricultural work. In the in the winter, it just dried up. So you've got people in the you know in the workhouse for winter, and in the spring uh, that they would know know there was labour to be had, and that would get them out as just part of their almost annual routine going in and out, in and out of the workhouse. But it was difficult. I mean, some people trudge around the country, you know, possibly with family in tow, looking for work and stopping at workhouses uh, overnight. Every workhouse had a a small provision uh, for passing travellers or tramps and vagrants uh, and uh, people looking for work. Uh, So you could actually sort of progress around the country uh, stopping at workhouses. uh, And there were people, you know, who who did use the workhouse in a sense uh, as, as a way of looking for work, trawling, you know, from city to city, uh, walking between the two places, um, but, uh, you know, could end up finding work that way. In the early 1900s, uh, it became more common uh, for people in the workhouse to be given work that reflected their previous occupation. So if you've got a carpenter, they wouldn't be forced to do stone breaking. Oh, there's a bit of, you know, mending on that, you know, staircase over there, and he's doing, you know, set on that. Uh, so people would keep their hand in. But as I say, you weren't given, you know, if, say, you were a workman that had needed tools to do their job and they'd had to sell those prior to coming into the workhouse, then they, they weren't allowed to receive a handout to buy new tools. It really was um, quite difficult. You really had to, I, I guess, take the plunge and just hope for the best uh, in, in, in some cases. Finally, Alan Wyatt asks, when were the last workhouses closed and what brought about their demise? And then Laura Lee XO also adds, and what happened to the people who lived there when they were closed? Well, there wasn't an overnight closure of the workhouses. In 1930, the control of the workhouses passed from these boards of guardians who'd been doing the job since 1834 over to local councils who kind of didn't actually do very much. They closed a few of them and they kind of revamped some of them and they turned them into what were called public assistance institutions. So poor relief had been relabeled public assistance uh, in uh, 1930. That's that, that kind of stage of things kind of um, uh, limped on, you might say, until 1947-48 when we had the Public Assistance Acts and the NHS uh, appeared. And all these former workhouses generally either be- stayed on as council-run old people's homes 
or they became NHS hospitals, uh, or in some cases, uh, a single site was split into two, uh, serving uh, both uh, purposes. Um, so there wasn't a wholesale emptying of doors. Uh, the ones that became old people's homes kept their existing inmates, and it was now called the Limes Old People's Home, rather than the, you know, uh, Lancaster Public Assistance Institution. Uh, the ones that became hospitals, again, if there were chronic patients in there, they would stay there. So 1948, I guess, it really marks the end of the workhouse system, although the name had sort of officially at least been phased out by them. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the workhouse that you come across when you when you answer people's questions like this that you would kind of want to set the record straight on? Oh, gosh. Um, I think, well, first of all, you have to appreciate that the workhouse was not set in aspect. It evolved enormously over the years. You know, any system whether it's health, education, you know, government, over a period of several hundred years, it's going to change. So having an idea that it was like this, wherever that comes from, the whole time is, is you know, is, is, is not uh, going to work. The other thing I, I would say is read as much as you can about the workhouse system and try and ignore the, the you know, the, the Oliver Twists and so on. I'm constantly depressed, actually. Anything you see on TV or in newspapers, really the popular newspapers that mentions the word workhouses, always starts from the premise that they were grim, miserable, cruel, you know, places. And they then sift for evidence to prove, you know, to, to illustrate to you that, that, you know, that, that, that was how it was. I think just approach the subject with an open mind. Don't believe these, you know, colourful, you know, caricatures that are always presented, even now, in most representations you see of the workhouse. Keep an open mind and remember that whatever you're looking at changed throughout that whole period. That was Peter Higginbotham. His books include Life in a Victorian Workhouse, which was published by Pitkin in 2011. And if you'd like to try some gruel yourself, or even some of the more appealing meals that Peter mentioned, then check out his Workhouse Cookbook. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on Jewish women who joined the resistance. 